0: Hi, this is Nina Sunday. This week I have a bonus episode for you my conversation from the Culture of Leadership podcast with Brendan Rogers about rookie mistakes new leaders make. Brendan asked me a ton of in depth questions and extracted a few gems from my experiences leading a team. Now it's over to Brendan Rogers to introduce me as his guest on the Culture of Leadership podcast. Happy listening. A good manager will reflect on their behavior and the reactions of the people that they're working with and come to some conclusions and some uh, resolutions that from now on, I won't do that, I'll try this. And just try new things, new ways of interacting with people.
1: Are you a new leader or aspiring to become one? If so, you won't want to miss this episode. Today I'm speaking with Nina Sunday the founder of Brainpower Training, podcast host of Manage Self Lead Others and a certified speaking professional. Nina's an experienced leader and has made a fair share of rookie mistakes. In this conversation, we'll explore the common missteps new leaders make and how to avoid them. From not understanding the big picture of your job to avoiding performance coaching, Nina shares her personal insights and offers valuable tips on how to build a thriving culture, develop your people and ultimately drive results. If you want to become a more confident leader and build a high-performing team, stay tuned. This is the Culture of Leadership podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Nina. So, Nina, you tell me what what's inspired you to pursue leadership.
0: Well, if I look back to before I started my business, I I was working at ABC Television and in other roles, and I was only ever hired to do the job I was hired to do. No one ever uh, was inspired to build my capability or to set up uh, some thoughts around career progression within the organization. So when one door shut in terms of me actually finding a pathway to be promoted within a large organization, I kind of got discouraged and actually, I had lots of ideas for self-employment, so that's what I did. And I, it was the right thing for me, of course. But because in the past it was the blind leading the blind when it comes to leadership, people were just, this is your job and this is what you do. And I didn't have any uh, boss that I could look back and say, they built my capability. They helped me see a future. They helped me see my own progress. I was left on, to my own devices with that. Because, But, of course, We're talking about 30 years ago when leadership wasn't the topic of conversation that it is today. So what inspired me? I was just like all the other leaders when I started growing my team and hiring salespeople and event coordinators and the business got into seven figures at one point. I was focused on results and what I didn't realise is that I also needed to be focused on culture. And in fact, it was ultimately it was culture that kind of was the the, the thorn in our side or, or, or shooting us in the foot. People would be enthusiastic at the start, then they would plateau, and then they would there would be a downward spiral, and they'd either leave or the, or I'd want them to leave because they were so negative. And I thought culture was really just about socializing and being, you know, making sure we had a few little events outside. When I went under the surface and started doing my own reading and also my own observations and reflection, I realized just one mistake at a time, I started correcting them. And then, of course, as I corrected my mistakes and got better at leading a team and got more motivated team members as a result, I started realizing that ultimately, if you focus on culture, the results look after themselves.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Was there something in particular that you did in your own journey that helped you, like an action that you took to start to help that self-development in the leadership space?
0: Well, I started looking at my own story and I identified that I had a, uh, like my first scar, if you like, in, in the working world. I was still at university. I had take, I had done a speed reading course, and I was employed by them to both do the promotional uh, presentations and to also uh, do the training. And I was, so I was working behind the scenes, and I was uh, employed. Oh, they they sent me to go to this little small town to do the the one hour presentation that they advertised on radio and television, and suddenly. We were swamped with people because it was a little town, and was not much else on it. wasn't the big city of Brisbane where I where I had been living. And so I was really proud of the fact that, in you know, in the last minute, myself and the assistant, we pulled out some chairs and we got everybody settled. And I did the presentation, and I got the uh, enrolments. And then I walked into the office next day, and the boss had a sour look on his face and said, "Sit down, you lost me money." And I'm going. I've just had the most incredible thing where I had to rise to the occasion and speak to eighty people, and I'd never done that before. And we we did the we did the event. Nothing bad happened, and I, I think I just looked at him quizzically, and he repeated it. You lost me money. What he was pointing out was, and that's what he said: you should have put a full house uh, sign on the door the minute it got uh, all the seats were full and there were no more seats. You can't have standing room only you lost me money. Anyway, I just, it was just, I was swamped by his negativity and his lack of appreciation. And I'm 19 years old for Pete's sake. I'm not a full-time seasoned sales professional that would happen to know that that's the standard operating procedure. It was all in his head. I'm expected to be a mind reader. Anyway, I walked out of there a week later. I went, you know what, if that's business, I want nothing of it. And I did not accept any more bookings from that company ever again. Now, I only realized recently that in the early days of being a manager, I really avoided performance coaching. When somebody did behavior that was habitual, that annoyed me, or that was interrupting other people, I would just tut-tut myself and say nothing because... I, I, th- I now realize I put two and two together. I think I thought that if I pulled people up and said this, um, this behavior is not good enough, that they would just quit and leave on the spot. And I didn't want that to happen. But really when I, bo- it, I it boiled down, I didn't know exactly what to say. So Suddenly I think I must have read a book or read an article and suddenly I started reading things like, here's what to say when you want to coach poor performance. And I went, oh, I might try that and it works. <laughs> so that's my long-winded answer to your question, Brendan.
1: <laughs> Look, it's a good answer. a Great example. And thankfully for for you and the clients that you've worked with and created so much value for, with over the time that you had a level of resilience and and you stuck with it. Uh, and You've obviously been a strong independent woman for some time, Nina, I have to say.
0: Oh well thank you and I have. <laughs> yeah, you're
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Nina, let's let's dive in because you've got some street cred. You've just shared some of that about these rookie mistakes that new leaders may make. So we're gonna unpack these five from your perspective today and your experiences. So what's this first one that you believe that you know a rookie mistake that new leaders make?
0: Well, it's I believe it's not understanding. The big picture view of your job, which is to build the capability of your people, because see, I was in a small business, and even if you're in a large organisation that's a huge bureaucracy or government, it's your job as a manager to develop the career and the uh, the credi- credibility and professionalism of the people who are in your team. And so, if you just focus on results and strategy. Culture is culture is there anyway? So if you're not focusing on culture, it will create its own, either positive culture or negative culture. So I I I think in in the past when I was a manager, I had to sort of prove that I had all the answers. I had to prove that, um, you know, that I was making sure we had we had financial goals and achievement goals, and that people were matching up to it. But your 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 team is may only be with you temporarily, and any employer, any manager has a duty to develop the people under them, so that when they do go for another job, whether it be a promotion within the organisation or another company, you've been developing them so that they will be in the marketplace, uh, someone that that. Uh, an employer wants to hire. So you do have that duty of care to someone's career progression to actually develop them, give them training or give them that sense of progress and actually help them identify, here's where you were when you started. Here's what you're doing now. Can you see how well you are progressing in your role? And it's not for you to then say, and then when you you can use this to apply for another job, of course, you don't want to, you want to keep them with you as long as you can. But I've had discussions with other business owners as well and they've said things to me like, yes, I used to find that people only stayed with me because we were a small business with not, not proper management hierarchy. There was really nowhere to people to progress to. They would only stay about one or two years. But when I started pointing out how they were progressing with their own skill set within the role, they tended to stay longer. So you've got this responsibility to help people identify how they are personally progressing as well as giving them a big picture view of the contribution, their role, and also the organisation is making, well, for want of a better term, uh, contributing to a better world. So it's all about create. Now these days we're talking about creating meaning, purpose, and and highlighting progress as a way to help build the capability of the people that you're working with and that report to you.
1: What do you see on the ground when the leader has and continues to live this mistake of not building capability? What does the organisation, the team, even the leader look like in action when they're living this mistake, they're not building capability?
0: Well, in order to answer this question, there's there's one little extra bit I want to add. And I found out, this was about 20 years ago, we had, a, I got a grant, government grant to do a business plan and we had the business planner come in and he did a three, what we call a 360 degree feedback. And for the first time, people could one-on-one tell him what they he asked, "Had questions? Tell him what they thought about working for for uh, Brain Power Training." And then he came back and said, "Well, people haven't told you this, but this is what they what they've told me." What I realised is that I was not doing one on ones with people, and so they weren't didn't have the uh, the channel of communication to say, "Nina, I'm not happy with this." I just the only time we had team discussions was as a team as a group no one's going to bring up what is their gripe if they have one in in front of the team, but they you could say well, they could ask for a meeting, but it's not really about them having to ask for a meeting if that's not part of the culture if you're not making one on ones part of the regular process of being uh, working with your team members, it's it's very difficult for them to ask for that because otherwise, it might turn into that horror of horror, performance appraisal, annual performance appraisal, where managers save up all the things they don't like and then swamp people with it at the end of the year or end of six months. We're talking about regular one-on-ones, about once every month, and it only has to be for about twenty minutes. And what I'm learning now is the key question is, are there any roadblocks? For you to get your job done, how can I help you? And it's really about you helping them. So if they feel like, if your team members feel like you've got their back, that you will help them clear the path to them achieving their goals, well, that creates loyalty. It creates uh, uh, that connection, uh, rapport. And people are less likely to do what we call triangles, which is talk behind your back negatively about you. And that is a killer. We don't want any triangles. We don't want any politics.
1: No, you're absolutely right. So is your one-on-ones or not having one-on-ones the rookie mistake number two?
0: Absolutely. And what I've evolved it into, and it kind of was something I ju- look, sometimes things just pop into my head. It's not that I read about it or... But I think about what would I want people to do for me or what did people not do for me that I wished they had. I remember I had this um, – a, a really good source of talent in a business are uh, students in their gap year between grade 12 and university. They're very happy to work four days a week. You are, you know, they're not expensive and yet they'll go on to be a doctor, a lawyer. Seriously, they have doctor, lawyer, uh, policymaker, work in parliament, advisor to parliament. So you're getting the cream for about 12 months while they're still fairly junior. And I, I remember on one occasion, I just had a one-on-one meeting with one and we had the flip chart up and we said, let's identify all the tasks that you do. And I had it in two columns and said, which are the ones that you like doing? Which are the ones that you think, hmm, I I do it, but they're not really my preference. And I was a little surprised at the answer. How can I know what people prefer or not prefer? And it was so easy for me to say, you know, I have a feeling we've got Katrina, we've got Mary. I have a feeling I could volunteer and see if they, you know, ask them to volunteer and see if they would like to do that task. And that's exactly what happened. We did a little bit of a job rotation because that's the other thing. If you can rotate roles so that people get um, a broad experience. I remember I, uh, it, with time management, one of the questions is uh, to delegate. You know, can, can you delegate this task? Who could you delegate to? Now, one of the tasks I used to hoard for myself was doing the financial confirmation for any booking that we had that was of any of any calibre, and I asked that question: Could you delegate this? Well, I suppose yes. Who could you delegate to? And sitting diagonally opposite me in the open plan office was a woman that was just doing telephone follow-ups, and I went: Well, she used to work for Qantas. Why don't I see if she wants to do um, the financial confirmations? She said, yes, I did a lot of admin in my other role. And not only that, we had a thing called four eyes control, which is two sets of eyes. She would prepare it. I would check it. My time was so saved. It was unbelievable. And we've done four eyes control ever since. I've delegated that task ever since. Because if you make a mistake, you've got to live with it. and It can cost you hundreds of dollars. But honestly, my time is more valuable than sitting there doing financial confirmations. (laughs)
1: yeah so it sounds like the actually making time to do those one-on-ones and you said it could just be 20 minutes but there's this this real opportunity to focus on the individual and to really make a connection get to know them a little bit more in their skill set so you can actually get the best out of them which links back to the first one around building capability
0: yeah um i i one of the things I always do with my people is, is get them to do some sort of a psychometric uh, assessment, and there's a lot of free ones on, uh, on the net. I really love the DISC profile. It, it isn't to label people or to box them in. It's just to get an understanding of it's a cluster of behaviours that has a pattern that gives you some insight into not only how people operate It'll tell you how they will execute a task if you give it to them. So, for example, uh, I I do like DISC. I've used Myers-Briggs. I've used Herman Brain Dominance Instrument, team management systems. There's a whole stack of them. Any new one comes along, I give it a go. Uh, There's the five-factor one that academics particularly like, OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N. But I remember once um, I gave it what in, in DISC they have, DISC. C is for conscientiousness or compliance. I gave a report to a high C to do, and I thought it would take a day. And I kept I kept saying, how's that going? And, oh, no, not, not done yet, not done yet. Because I'm not a micromanager, and that's a mistake of some managers, I didn't say, well, show me what you're doing. I just went, You know, I was pretty busy with whatever I was doing. I just assumed, oh well, she's she's a efficient, capable person, I'm sure, you know, she's working it out. It took four days and I got a thesis that would have probably passed any master's degree. And all I wanted to know was this particular initiative where we put put videos and books into bookstores around Australia didn't make a profit or was it worthwhile? So I probably should have given that task to someone that was a high D, direct or dominance, that looks for the shortcuts and goes, what's the bottom line? Was it profitable? But you know what it was? I didn't probably give her dire- um, enough direction. So, you see, you can be a laissez-faire manager where you say, just do it, or you can be a very directive manager where you micromanage, which actually can annoy some or most people. I was probably more on the laissez faire this is the this is the goal, you, you get get to it any way you like. But sometimes it's good to check in <laughs> and see, check how they're doing it, but also if I'd have been thinking about the 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 psychometric result that she was a very high C, that probably she was going to give me more detail than I needed. So maybe I needed to step in earlier. But these are look, no one's perfect and we're learning all the time. <laughs>
1: We absolutely are as well. Maybe it comes, the thing that pops in my head, because I know you mentioned one on ones sort of monthly, but even the potential to have those weekly. I know leaders are very busy and things like that, but if you're only talking 15 to 20 minutes, that could potentially save a hell of a lot of time down the track.
0: Yeah. I look back to the early days, even before we had our first website. I remember uh, one of the salespeople came up and said, "Oh, the uh, the local chamber of commerce has a web page, and you could you could get on the internet." And and at the time, it was like that was like we're talking the year two thousand, right? It was still early days of the internet, and people didn't you didn't wasn't necessary to have uh, a, a web presence, although really it probably was. But I just instead of inviting that person to have a conversation or inviting that person to bring it to the team and let's talk about it. I kind of went, oh no, we're not going to do that right now. I closed down innovation too quickly and just off the side. I I wouldn't even be leading from the front when I did it. I'd be leading from the side. By that I mean, if you're going to make a decision, if someone's going to come to you with a suggested innovation that has has legs. There was nothing wrong with that suggestion. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe the to get on the net was a good thing. Maybe it wasn't to actually be involved with that particular pathway. Maybe someone else could come up with a different pathway. It's it's about um, inviting people to share their ideas and using that one idea to springboard to an even better idea. So, because I have this saying, always look for the second right answer. So. Just because one suggestion isn't perfect that you want to take action with, just stop take a take a moment, take a breath to actually consider that idea and to show that individual that you value them making a contribution because uh the other the the other the other frame that you want to give people that work in your in your business or in your organization is. They're not there just to do the job you've hired them to do. They're there to also share their thoughts on how they can continuously improve the role they're doing. Uh, Constant reinvention is important. And this whole principle of uh, Kaizen, which comes out of the Toyota Way, which is the Japanese principle of change is good, you'll have a a, a, a positive workplace culture with energy and vitality if you're encouraging innovation and suggestions for improvement. So that's what I've learned is to not close down ideas because I think in the in the early days I thought, well, I'm the manager and I have to be the source of all knowledge. I have to be the one that solves the problems. I've really, I don't think it was ego so much as, I have to prove I've got the credibility to, to be in this role, to have people that I've hired, that I'm leading. I now have developed so much self-assurance that I don't need to prove it. I can ha- help my the people that work with me to shine. And I'm happy to step back and really give them credit because we all progress if everybody is shining and feeling like they're progressing.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I tend to think because my own experience has been very similar in that when you've been uh, you know gifted a the opportunity to lead people and to serve people that there's almost an expectation that came with it granted maybe decades ago but probably still around today to some extent that you know, you'll prove yourself. And how do you prove yourself? Well, the best way you know how is that you're, you're taking on more technical competence and you're, you're covering things and, and you can sort of do everything. So I, I hear what you're saying. And what I love in the example you've, sh- or the example you've shared is, again, going back to our first two rookie mistakes, this not building capability and one-on-ones, all these things you're talking about. If you're focused on building capability and if you're taking the time for one-on-ones and having the right conversations around that, all these things start to play out, don't they?
0: Absolutely. And Mm. my research has uncovered some interesting uh, uh, research by the the Google company called Project Oxygen, where their people lab actually, lab, I should say, where their people lab identified the eight good behaviours of a manager, and that's informed me. Uh, I think I came across that in 2015. And that's informed how I work with my people. And uh, interestingly, out of the eight good behaviors, number eight in order of priority is having the technical competence to guide people on, on the technical aspects of the team. Really high up there on the list is um, the ability to help with career progression, the ability to understand a little bit more about um, what's going on in people's lives. And there was a lovely book that I read, oh, this is about 20 years ago now, by a Brisbane dentist called Dr. Paddy Lund called The Happiness-Centered Business. And there was one little suggestion in that book that I took on board and I, it stayed with us ever since. It was the idea of having a group morning tea. And I decided to bring that in because in, before that people would just go up and get their own coffee or tea and take it back to their desk and that was it. People would just do the, you know, here's the kitchenette, get it, go back. So we decided that uh, about three days a week at about 11 o'clock, not on the dot because it depends what we're all doing, but about 11 o'clock, we'd go and get our tea or coffee or beverage, whatever, Coca-Cola, and just sit down together for 15 minutes and honestly, that's where I found out the little things that were happening in people's lives. You know, the, 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 the family that have parents that are ill or the, or the family that have children who are, you know, having to go through exams at school or whatever the, or they're having a holiday. So the good things and, and the, uh, the challenges. So I found that that part of culture not only was taken care of, I started enjoying my team more than ever. In fact, they became my friends at work, and I really value the fact that we created this morning tea culture that really made a difference. Now, having said that, obviously, as a manager, I have to make sure it doesn't become half an hour. So what I would do is I would just mostly often say we'd have meetings, but often I'd say, oh, I'd pick the right moment, but it would be about 15 minutes. I'd say mini-meeting. And we just spend five minutes talking about something to do with the business. And then, of course, that was the uh, the cue for everybody to go back to their place. So this, this look, when I was 12 and worked at, at my mother's um, office, which was the old B, uh, BOC gases, we used to actually walk down to the canteen and they had free tea and coffee and walk all the way back. I'm sure it took half half an hour. So in the old days, there was the camaraderie of morning tea. But somehow people now just work at their desk over lunch, uh, don't have tea and coffee together. And often we solve problems. Uh, one phrase is around the water cooler. We don't really have water coolers so much anymore. But this informal conversation that you can have with colleagues uh over a tea or, or maybe a lunch, uh, you know, just eating your lunch together, can really have product productivity benefits. So that's that's one thing that I took on board and I'm really glad I did.
1: And I guess there weren't too many smartphones around that time ago as well to take our time. But let's let's not go into that. Well, no, no, there is
0: something I do want to say about that, Brendan, because I noticed that, you know, with the uni students that might be working part-time, which I I really favour that particular source of talent, uh, and uni students all can work part-time, we would, one new one, we had morning tea, and he he was sitting at our morning tea, we are all chatting, looking at his phone. But then I had a one-on-one with him and said, I just want you to understand the purpose of morning tea. You can check your phone anytime you like throughout the day, but morning tea is an opportunity for all the team members to chat together. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind, please, checking your phone at other times and being involved in the conversation. From then on, he was part of the conversation. In fact, in in my book, Workplace Wisdom, I've called it thubbing, which is phone snubbing. (laughs) when people sit where people are other people are having conversation they sit glued to their phone it's about there's a time for conversation and there's another time for uh checking your phone that's two different times
1: fubbing I love it and also a fantastic example from you as a leader in just taking him aside having a respectful conversation and setting an expectation and then he's able to meet that expectation without too many dramas at all by the sounds of it
0: oh yes because I didn't make him lose face by saying it in front of everybody else oh mm. you know get off your phone <laughs> you know that 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 would only create resentment so I've kind of learned not to not for people not to lose face that you know if you yeah. have any kind of feedback do it do it one on one and then they understand yeah
1: yeah great example Nina let's get into our third rookie mistake because we've spoken number 1 building capability number 2 not having or not building capability not having one on ones what's number 3 on your list
0: well it's it's actually getting good at Identifying the best language to use, uh, and this is this is when you want to pull up poor behaviour. Because, look, I I'm a bit of a I used to be a bit of an avoidant manager, and what would happen is, look, one example was uh, there was a team member it, she'd been there three years, and I noticed, that we had separate little offices. There was an open plan plus my little office, and I would come out of my office. And she would spring back into her chair because she had been talking to the person next to her, which means she was interrupting herself and the other person. But it wasn't that it happened once. It was habitual. It was happening all the time. But I didn't know. We're talking We're talking, nearly two decades ago. I didn't know how to bring it up because I went, oh, it's so petty. I can't tell people not to talk at work. But what I can do is really have a conversation and just say, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I notice that sometimes when I come out of the office, you seem to react in a way that looks a little bit guilty to me. Are you? Do you feel a little bit guilty? I mean, I could have had that conversation like that. I didn't have to come down like a ton of bricks and and be ac- accusatory and blaming. I could have just said, "I oh, this is something I just notice. It's called social sensitivity, Brendan. It's like I." I've noticed this behavior and I'm just wondering about it because if if you're feeling guilty, why would you be feeling guilty? And it's in that way, it's not really it's not me accusing, it's me coming in with seeking to understand. It's asking questions to understand. The other good thing it's doing is using poor behavior. Well, it's perhaps it was a mistake on that. Person's part uh, is to 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 react in a way that looked like she was guilty, but you know because I didn't have that conversation and I read this book by that I'm I'm going to recommend Eli Goldratt. He's now passed on, but he is a an absolute organizational management um, genius. He started life as a physicist. He wrote The Goal. I really recommend this to everybody. It's his his theory of constraints is taught in all the Um, MBA management schools around the world, I read his little book called The Choice and it said any disharmony, any disharmony will will reduce your profitability. And so what I did, the grand plan was I restructured the roles in the office and informed this person there was no such, that role that they were employed for doesn't exist anymore. So in fact, I moved them out of the business. I didn't have to lose a good person. I could have handled it differently. Yes, occasionally you have to ask people to leave. Yes, you do. And yes, you do have to restructure. But really, when I look at the core, I went, I could have handled it differently. People do leave of their own volition. They do find other jobs. Let that be the way that they leave the business rather than you having to say, there is no, there is no role for you anymore. Um, I look back, I wasn't perfect, but hopefully my reflection has enabled me to find better ways to move forward in the future.
1: Nina, are you saying that you decided, and again, many moons ago, but you decided to take a level of, uh, I guess, a a high level of dealing with it, I move them out of the organisation, as opposed to raising what may be a little irritation?
0: Well, it... It had been going on for months, but I hadn't found a voice. I had to find my own voice. I didn't then, but I have subsequently because of, over time I read, I maybe go to workshops, I listen now to podcasts. You can't, you look, reflect back. A good manager will reflect on their behaviour and the reactions of the people that they're working with and come to some conclusions and some Uh, resolutions that from now on, I won't do that, I'll try this. And just try new things, new ways of interacting with people. I must admit, that particular restructure meant that I brought in the role of interns. That actually was a really good thing for my business. So it wasn't a complete mistake, and it is good to constantly evolve. Um, And perhaps the reason for us restructuring the business didn't have to be that reason, but it was. But honestly, it wasn't, in the big scheme of things, it it enabled us to move forward with uh, what what I call interns and people that, uni students that come in for maybe 13 days or 30 days, depending on, uh, well, uh, sometimes I'm actually now working with a university locally and they have a 13-day or 100-hour internship. I'm now one of the recognised mentors. That has evolved after the last 10 years. I know we had one intern when I launched my very first book on, uh, on how to study a memory. I actually didn't guide her at all. We just did a big meeting at the start. We said we want all these social media posts. We want all this. We want all that. I've still got a photo of all the post-it notes that we did. And she just came in and really just did her own thing uh, until the end of the, of the internship and end of the promotional period. But that person then went on through a theory, series of um, uh, uh, career steps to become the social media manager for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So uh, I've seen some wonderful progression by bringing in, into the business one day a week interns for whatever is the duration and sometimes they're paid and sometimes they're unpaid uh, but you do have a responsibility for them to one grow, um, to grow them in terms of their career but also to give them the, the ability to have a creative project where they can progress um, uh, their own skills and, and I, I, don't, I don't really meddle I, I, uh, I liaise but I don't micromanage
1: Yeah, and I guess, again, linking back to the mistakes that new leaders or not even new leaders can make, it's what I'm getting, what I think I'm hearing is that there can be little things that people do, which can be a bit of an annoyance and, you know, not aligned with what's the behavioural expectation of the organisation, that having the courage to just have the conversation when it is small so that things don't get out of hand Am I right in saying that?
0: Yes, and uh, what springs to mind, Brendan, is one of the shifts in my own awareness happened when I realised that I was not leading from the front, I was leading from the side. Now, the the trigger for that was years ago, 15 years ago, on television was a, uh, on cable TV, was a program called uh, uh, Shalom in the Home with Rabbi Shmuley and it's so long ago i don't know if people remember it but what it was it was this particular rabbi would park his caravan at the at the invitation of the people uh, of the family that was requesting their in, his intervention park his caravan next to the in, in the driveway of their house install um, closed circuit tv and watch in real time the interactions of the family, the parents and the children with each other. And this one particular example, uh, the woman was fishing for something in the fridge and then while she still got her arm inside this huge fridge looking for something, turned her head to her teenage son and said, I notice you haven't, you know, emptied the dishwasher. Can you hurry up and do that for us, please? And it was just this, you know, irritated, irritated instruction And, of course, he was kind of irritated. And when Rabbi Shmuley sort of pointed out, if you have an instruction to give your son and you're fishing in the fridge, close the fridge door, invite him to sit down, have a conversation with him, find out is there any roadblock to him not (laughs) emptying the dishwasher and in a calm and courteous way remind him, that that's the role, that's the job that he's agreed to do. And it needs to be done in a timely way. So we can, once it's empty, then we can start putting in the fresh new new dishes that need to be done. And just giving him the reason behind why it needs to be done promptly. But he said, what you were doing, you were leading from the side, you were not leading from the front. And that to me was like, whoa, that was a big lesson to me. I would frequently, I'd be You know, I'd come out of my little open plan, no, into the open plan from my little office that had glass doors, just how it was set up, and I'd be standing by the kettle and I'd be giving instructions at the kettle. I'm going, Nina, what are you doing? I look back and I go, oh, that's terrible. Well, now I know it's terrible. At least I don't have to do it anymore.
1: (laughs) I do chuckle at this, Nina, because I'm thinking about my own actions. Do you ever find yourself maybe being more correct around leading from the front with in your work environment and with your clients as opposed to your personal environment? Because I know I do. I think i lead from the side too much in my personal environment.
0: Well, if you're talking about your spouse, well, I didn't have children and, and, children, I, did, and I, although I did have, I have adult children. <laughs> and I live alone these days and I've only got a cat. So I haven't got the opportunity to try it out, but um, I didn't have much luck with my spouse so, <laughs> in terms of reading from the front or the side.
1: <laughs> but hence right. we're not I'm, together I'm anymore. You might want to edit that question. one out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic. classic. Nina, let's, let's, now's a good time to go into our fourth rookie mistake. Hey? What's, the, what's the fourth one in your experience?
0: Well, I think I've I've been mentioning heaps of them. I think there's a... <laughs> Let me see. Um, okay. Yes, yes. Ah, oh, yes. These are all the these trigger moments that came to me. I remember seeing a pattern of behaviour, and this was often with salespeople, where they'd come on board. Of course, you interview them, and so they sort of promise you the world. You're paying... With sale, full-time salespeople, you pay big bucks, and there's commission involved. So... They, they'll promise the, the world. And also I've even paid um, uh, recruitment companies to, to place a, um, a salesperson. And they, the, the recruitment company comes with big promises. So you, you assume, well, you've pa- you're paying a good wage and all of that. They're all very enthusiastic in the beginning. And then you kind of just, in order to not micromanage, so there's a little bit of fear here. My fear, and this is the avoidant manager streak that I'm fixing, in order to not come across as micromanaging or disapproving or accusatory, I would kind of let people just do their job. But what I would discover is in the beginning they would treat me with respect and it's like I, you know, I was hiring them so I was their boss that it would start to plateau and the dynamic would start to shift, probably because I wasn't leading from the front or doing one-on-ones. The dynamic would start to shift. They would start to be the tail wagging the dog. They would start to tell me how things should happen, but not in a way that was respectful or courteous. And then then the relationship would go downhill and... Either they would leave or eventually they would leave, right? But it wouldn't be amicable. It would be because it's just not good here anymore. Not necessarily me asking them to leave. They would just leave. But I read Charles Handy's The, the Empty Raincoat. He talked about the sigmoid curve, which was in any progress cycle, if you think of a plant that comes up as a, as a, as a bud, uh, it, it creates the flower and then the flower dies. If you think of all uh, people working in a role, in the beginning, let's say it's a, one, uh, a three-year cycle. In the first year, they're excited. In the second year, they're doing the job. But in the third year, unless you start a second curve, they will autom- it will be a downward spiral until, until the finish. And that's when I started to see the pattern is I was not creating the second curve. Now, how do you create a second curve? It's like creating a new campaign. Say it was a salesperson. Instead of doing the same old, same old, you find a way for them to do something new that requires them to maybe start afresh or learn afresh that is actually enhancing their capability. It becomes this, um, uh, you know, positive cycle then. Uh, as opposed to people just getting bored, because in us, well, look, we are at, in our biggest uh, iteration, we only had we had ten full time staff, so that's a medium sized business. I know if you're a large business with fifty or five thousand people, there's more pathways to people to promoting people and mo- uh, rotating people through roles. But even in a small business, surely there's a way you can think about how can I make this job feel new again for this person, which is also building their capability, but also you're not taking their skills for granted. You're, well, I think also making sure you praise them. I probably, probably could learn to praise people more frequently.
1: Yeah, I think we can all, Take that on board, the praising people. Once again, I just want to clarify though, if my understanding is correct, it's you mentioned the building capability back to one, but it's almost like it's a level of progression within their role. So, you know, yes. new challenges, setting a new uh, new challenge for them to really get their teeth into, which can help with their career progression. Career progression doesn't mean that you need to move on to your next role or your career, but within that role, you're growing and developing. That's uh, another form of progression. Yeah, is because, that fair to say?
0: Absolutely. Because I, I look back to, there was a point of which we, when, when this is before, uh, uh, when bookstores were still all over the country. We came up with a campaign to um, put uh, the books that I had published, and also some uh, training videos. We put up, we created a campaign to put all these DVDs in all the bookstores, which was quite successful, and the and also it tied in with um, bookmarks that had a discount to get people to our public programs in speed reading. So it was a whole um, whole campaign, but I didn't take the full-time salesperson who was doing our B2B sales off that and get that person to do that new campaign, I hired a brand new person. Thinking back now, I would have thought, well, why don't invite, like the person has a choice. I didn't give them the choice. I just went, oh, well, we have to find a new person because I want someone to do the B2B. Well, I could have thought more uh, with more innovation and go, well, in order to retain this person in the business, why don't I offer them a whole new campaign that will serve the business and then I, I'll i just recruit someone to replace them so, in fact, they feel like they've made a promotion and a progression. I look back now and I was blinkered uh, in terms of, oh, we've got a new campaign so we have to get a new person. No, who in the business might see that? as a plus, as a sense of uh, uh, progression. And then you're keeping them for longer. I know I've had, look, my my support people, my executive assistants, my first one lasted seven years and my second lasted 17. So I do have longevity with some people and some roles. But obviously, I've, look, with recruiting, I've sort of worked out a few things with recruiting, but I figure – for every three that I recruit two out of three are absolutely correct. And the third one, mm, I could have done better, but it's, that's also another ability to improve the way you do things, you know, the, in the hiring and the recruiting side of things.
1: Wasn't it meatloaf that said two out of three ain't bad?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I figured two out of three ain't bad. I get, yeah, I, I, I've just I think there's a lot of leaders around
1: Nina that would take two out of three. So I think I, I've met a few over the time that are probably none from three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yet yeah, hiring the right people—that's—that's that's actually why I like interns because actually, if they're not the right person, there's it's an order. It's a project based uh, event. They're hired for a certain number of days. And here's here's the thing: uh, if you get say a first or second year uni student, they're doing a four year program. You can actually, after the thirty days are up, invite them to stay on for longer. And in fact, I did that. I moved my uh, an intern from one day a week to th- three days, uh, become my three day a week's assistant, and that was very, very uh, happy until she graduated and got her corporate role, and now she's off and running. So you can, yeah, the, I I really find there's a really good talent source in the gap year students and the interns. And I think a lot of businesses don't even th- think about that. They think they have to get another full-time equivalent person, whereas interns, they're, they're really, they would rather not have to work at uh, a, you know, a burger joint if they can. You know, something that is a bit, uh, is an, as a knowledge worker, is a, a real plus for them.
1: Yeah, once again, it's a great example. and It's it's just an example where leaders and people in business who are hiring people, they need to think a little bit differently, particularly now in the the day-to-day challenges of of work, low unemployment, those sorts of things, and people are far more choosy about the sort of work that they do that's kind of linked to their passion or they're going to feel like they can grow and develop from it. They're just not prepared to take on anything that falls in their lap, are they? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, In fact, uh, young people today have these portfolio careers and some of them don't even want a full-time corporate corporate role even when they graduate because they've got these side projects side hustles that actually uh, give them that sense of creativity and progress that perhaps uh, working for an employer may not so um, I, I, I have come across some employers that say oh well if they won't do full-time I'm not interested I'm going yeah, well, you might be losing the cream, you know, because <laughs> sometimes the cream are the creatives and they actually need a day oh. a week for their own projects.
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Nina, let's go into, I know you, like you said before, you've mentioned a number through the conversation already. So I'm going to challenge you to think of the fifth. What's the fifth rookie mistake?
0: Well, um, oh, gee, I thought I've I thought mentioned a few... <laughs> Um, They're not really in any real chronological order. Um, One of the, one of the, oh, okay, here we go. Not building your own capability, thinking that you know enough, you don't need to read, you don't need to go to workshops, you you have learned on the job and you know all there is to know. I think that sort of, um, overconfidence has a name, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect says, sometimes the people with the least knowledge have the most confidence. And that is an error because they're overconfident. Now, of course, overconfidence does mean people can bluster their way uh, through a role and through an organization. But to really have the, the attributes of of an effective team, um, I actually go back to um, to the Google company again. They their Pro- people lab was very was very uh, active, and they had another project called Project Aristotle, where they came up with what were the attributes of, the effect, of an effective team, and they very much looked at meeting um, behavior and. This is something that I took on board when I, when I came across this research is that psychological safety and conversational equality were the two attributes of an effective team. Now, with conversational equality, what that means is that it's the manager's role is to ensure that everybody expresses their opinion of course you can give them the right to pass because you don't want people to feel forced to give an opinion but sometimes people sit there quietly the introverts will often let the fast talkers dominate and if you if you invite those that are quiet you as the manager can observe and say well I noticed Jack said this and Tom said that but uh Jill you, you look like you're you're thinking deeply there have you got a thought that you want to add sometimes that's all people need to invite them to share their opinion sometimes i'm in i'm in groups where um you know i'm i'm in exalted company and i'm a little bit on the back foot in terms of oh do i really want to offer up my opinion here i'm in very exalted company but the minute somebody says nina what do you think out, out, it all comes. I've I've been sitting there because th- I'm half introvert. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't guess, uh, but I am half introvert, and so it all comes out if I'm invited to. If if I feel that I don't feel quite so co- confident in this particular group, but once, uh, once I'm invited, whatever I've been thinking about will come out. That's quite important for a, an effective team because. If a team is about to make a decision that maybe has some unintended consequences that an introvert not expressing it won't be revealed to the team, it can lead to a huge error. And one perfect example of that is has, has got the name of Dieselgate. It's the VW company because back in twenty fifteen they fitted the diesel uh, engines of the, of them of all their. Um, uh, Vehicles in the United States and Europe with a software device that would fool the government emission uh, 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 assessments, and then when it was found out, well, it it was uh, the VW company was fined billions of euros and dollars, and maybe someone went to jail, and they had to get rid of seven thousand staff. But and it was the biggest manufacturer of vehicles around the world at the time they are coming back now with a design for an electric car they'll be launching it on the market they'll they'll come back but it really was a setback and what what the new uh, ceo matthias müller said it was really a combination of project managers and engineers not saying what they needed to say and groupthink got them all involved down a track that really was the wrong track so that's that's why conversational equality It's really important and so that's why I make sure everybody has a say. (laughs) I remember once we did a brainstorm, it took two hours. I've learned now to put limits because what I did, I did the the Brian Tracy thing of putting the numbers one to 20 on the flip chart and say, what are 20 ideas of way we could improve? Well, to come up with 20 took two hours and I went, I'm only going to do 10 next time. (laughs) But it's really good. For constant reinvention and constant innovation is to every now and again. I suppose this is another. Uh, it's not so much a rookie mistake because I used to do this uh, very much in the beginning, uh, anyway. So, but what I do do is for for is to harvest the good ideas of my team. Is to do a little brainstorm and say how might we improve? And then whatever is the process, it might be how might we improve the way we thank customers for uh, you know doing a booking. It could be anything. And it may not be that there's a problem to solve. It might be, well, how can we just do better what we're already doing well? So I don't see, the, see that as a rookie mistake because that's something I've always done from the start.
1: And again, it's uh, just to link it back for our listeners too, for for those that may not connect, is when you're having those conversations, when you're putting up those challenging questions out there, things come out through those conversations, which actually enables the ability to build capability, which is where you started from. You actually, you know, oh, hey, I know this can you help me do this? Or actually, we've got someone who's got a bit of a flavor for this, but we're not quite sure. Okay, how can we build those capabilities? She starts to create those conversations into how do we make this happen once we've come up with the ideas?
0: Absolutely, Brendan. And these are ideas that big, big organizations can uh, take on board. But also, if you're, if you're a solopreneur, one way to grow is to actually bring your, your, bring people on board one at a time and to apply all the good lessons of how to manage people. And so you actually, are as you develop the capability of your people, you're developing your own capability as a leader. And that's the important thing. Because when I, uh, I was invited to be uh, a chapter president for my association, Professional Speakers, I had already had practice leading people. So I was able to actually become a good, a good uh, president for my association for the year that I was doing it. So it, it, it has side benefits through any role that you have to do. And that goes back to uh, asking, you asked before, Brendan, about does it, does it apply to your own life? Well, if you volunteer in any, in any capacity with any uh, group of people, Certainly your your leadership uh, skills are going to come out there and that's a good thing because I like it when there's a group event, even a birthday, where somebody actually takes the floor and says a few words and gives us an all big picture appreciation of the moment. And if people don't step up to the plate to say, I'd like to say a few words and I'd like to invite a few people to say a few words... It doesn't happen, but isn't it warming to the heart when that does happen? So that's something that can play out in your own life, just in your own social events when we're all together for a for a particular event, whether it be someone's graduation or someone's birthday or someone um, achieving uh, some some milestone.
1: I like it, Nina. Is there a mistake? going to push you is there one of the mistakes that you've mentioned today where you think would have the biggest impact if a leader a new leader focused on not making that mistake
0: well uh, uh, what's coming to mind is i worked with a large organization where we did a bit of a brainstorm as part of the productivity training on how they could improve the way they do things and i got them to all take photos of the flip charts and then someone came up to me and, they, and said nina we feel a bit hopeless doing this because we know nothing's going to change because we've got a leader of the of the division who wields disapproval like a sword I call that a workplace bully. (laughs) But here's the thing. It's important that when people do make mistakes, that they're not blamed, they're not criticized, they're not bullied, they're not um, belittled, that actually uh, use mistakes as a learning opportunity. In fact, the the very first book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, before he published that really thick Sequel called uh, The Myth Revisited that was way too thick. The little original one, if you can get it in a secondhand store. The lesson I got from that, and I, that was when I was a solo pr- solopreneur, was if someone makes always have ch- uh, checklists, procedures, and if someone makes a mistake, it's not because they didn't do a good job. It's because your your procedure or your checklist or your standard operating procedure. Was it was it fault? So what you have to do is find the root cause, put in a a check and balance, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Because you don't want uh, roles where people are relying on their memory to do the job. Because if they leave with short notice, and it could not because they're upset, just suddenly they're going overseas or they're, they're or whatever, you might only have two weeks notice, and you've been. Relying on this person to just do a good job, if it's not written down as a procedure, that's corporate memory that leaves with them. And I've worked with organizations where that's that has been my observation. They didn't find out what the good person's processes were, and then suddenly someone who was not as capable was trying to pick up the role and it was it was really quite beyond them. So always have procedures. And then, and this is where I, I'll often say to people, now, here, I, you've been doing this for a while. I just want to have a quick check. Is what you're doing now the same as that procedure that we gave you when you arrived? Oh, no, I found a better way to do it. Well, could you now make this procedure a living, breathing document and just take a, a moment to actually update it? Because I want to always keep these systems... Uh, these system and checklists valid and uh current and if you just let people go off and do their own thing um well you'll, you'll the corporate memory, memory will uh will go with the, with them when they leave the leave the role so yeah having having systems and blaming the system if people have an error and using mistakes to learn from them
1: Yes, yeah, spot on. Nina, I want to ask my last question. What's helped you to become a more confident leader?
0: Sorry, could you just repeat that again? I missed one of the words.
1: What's helped you become a more confident leader?
0: Well, doing the job, having people give me thank you cards when they leave and they think I sometimes find out that I helped people in ways I had no idea that I did, and I save them all. I've got a little box where I save any thank you card for when someone leaves a role, and I go, "Isn't that fabulous?" I'll always give them a little thank you card as well as uh, if they're if they're moving on to some some other some other role. It's so I really rely on the feedback that people give me. So, in one on ones, that's the opportunity to ask. And how are you finding my interaction with you, or just finding the right words to say, am I, am I, communicating with you in the way that you'd like me to communicate? If there was one way, if there was a better way for me to communicate with you or to work with you, what would it be? And that's a uh, asking a speculative, hypothetical question in a way that is safe and invites a um, a response that actually does trigger people to go a little bit deep. If there was one way that we could improve the way uh, you do your role, what would it be? So that speculative hypothetical question can be quite powerful. So think about the art of asking good questions that get to the the root cause of things, but without making people feel or or lose face or, or feel belittled or, or or criticized so the art of asking good questions so instead of just coming in full bore and saying this happened and this can't happen again go in and say this happened can anyone give me some clues as to why and how it happened and just really be a Columbo <laughs> oh by the way <laughs> but asking good questions
1: <laughs> yeah A couple of phrases come to mind that, that asking good questions, really the phrase that comes to mind is that famous seek to understand, but then also the asking for feedback, you know, as a leader getting good at asking for feedback, because I actually think that's, that's the game changer because there's so few leaders out there, managers, whatever you want to call them, that are asking for feedback and being deliberate about asking for feedback. So thank you for sharing that. That's a fantastic reminder. Fantastic Mm -hmm. reminder.
0: And I am reminded of one other point, Brendan, which is, and I believe that President Reagan, US President Reagan was very, very good at this. He was very good at assigning credit to other people. When people say, oh, you're a a great president at doing this, he say, oh, it wasn't me. It was my, you know, Secretary of State or whatever. If you are big enough, generous enough, a person to say, it wasn't me, it was my executive assistant it wasn't me it was my sales uh business development executive if you can really give credit to the other people you're creating loyal people that probably will thank you because it's like oh i'm being acknowledged and sometimes that's all people want they just want to be acknowledged and so if you can do ah because i i I, these are conversations i have with some of my clients as i'll say oh do you ever get um, customer compliments? And then I'll say, and what do you do with it? Oh, well, it goes into a log. I say, well, do you actually have a, at, at the next meeting, make, publicly acknowledge the person and tell them what the actual customer compliment was? Oh, no, we never thought to do that. Honestly, Giving people compliments in front of the other members of the team is probably such a big thing to cultivate um, uh, people staying in their role. I think that's one of the reasons my executive assistants stay each stayed so long, is because I I, I believe I got good, I got better at acknowledging and complimenting people for the things they did. What uh, uh, Working for me, I, I, my my business is a little bit um, downsized these days, but I, I still can use these lessons I learned from a medium sized business certainly in my um in my the smaller entity that it is now. And when I'm yeah, working absolutely. with what you- as well. <laughs>
1: Exactly. What you shared today is so practical and you know people reflecting on these things. And I know I can put my hand up and say, hey, I've made all of those mistakes that you've mentioned today. But I like to think that I'm learning every day and hopefully I'm improving and getting better in all those areas. So now's my time to give you some praise, Nina. Oh, Thank you for being such a fantastic guest on our Culture of Leadership podcast. Um, you're such a just a, a nice person to talk to. You, you bring an energy to the conversation. I know, I'm so glad our paths crossed a little while back and it's been a, a while since we've been able to get you on the podcast, but I, I've been looking forward to our conversation today and you shared... Be a hell of a lot more, as you said, than five rookie mistakes. So I'm going to have to unpack this. I might have to change the title post-production. But anyway, I appreciate you and appreciate the time and effort in your preparation for today. And as I said, for being a fantastic guest on the podcast.
0: Oh, Brendan, and and likewise, back at you. You you are your prep in in, in, in uh, for me as a guest was was uh, the best I've ever experienced, and and it shows in terms of your ability to question. You're a great interviewer. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. As a rookie leader, I know I made more than my fair share of mistakes. We all make them. And as the saying goes, we learn from our mistakes. Listening to this episode won't stop you making mistakes. It's an important part of your leadership journey. My hope is that this conversation will empower new and aspiring leaders to avoid common mistakes ultimately maintaining their confidence and unlocking their full potential as confident leaders. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Nina. My first key takeaway, confident leaders build capability. They understand the importance of building and nurturing the capabilities of their team members. They invest in training, provide opportunities for growth and encourage their team to take on new challenges. By building capability, they create a strong foundation for their team to succeed and grow together. My second key takeaway, confident leaders explore innovation. They understand that innovation is crucial to staying ahead in today's fast-paced world. They encourage their team to contribute and explore new ideas and take calculated risks. They create an environment that encourages creativity and experimentation, and they're willing to try new things themselves. By exploring innovation, they keep their team and organisation ahead of the curve. My third key takeaway, confident leaders own their self-development. They take responsibility for their own self-development. They seek feedback, reflect on their own strengths and weaknesses and actively work to improve themselves. They understand that their own growth and development is critical to the success of their team and organisation. By owning their self-development, they lead by example and inspire their team to do the same. So in summary, my three key takeaways were confident leaders build capability, confident leaders explore innovation, and confident leaders own their self-development.
0: Hi, this is Nina Sunday again, and I trust you enjoyed this recent episode from Brendan Rogers' podcast, The Culture of Leadership, and hearing about the evolution of my leadership capability from novice to knowing a little bit about the subject... You can find The Culture of Leadership via your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, links in the show notes. Until next time, enjoy good things.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.